Hello and welcome to the Marketing Week podcast, where we look to make sense of the heady world of marketing. Your compass, your guide, your navigator, asking the big questions about the biggest issues to help you, dear listener, do what you already undoubtedly do very well, even better. And who knows, we may even entertain as well as intellectually edify along the way. My name is Russell Parsons and I'm the editor of Marketing Week. I'm your host. I'm joined by two of the very wonderful Marketing Week editorial team, Lucy Tesserus, Features Editor, and Special Projects Editor, Michael Barnett. Together, we're going to try and tackle 2017, the marketing moments, the campaigns, the heroes, and even the villains. We've also got one eye on the future, and we will be offering our thoughts on what it is that's going to hurtle to the top of your entree in 2018. 2017 has continued where 2016 left off with something seemingly new every day to be outraged by. From Trump, Brexit, terror to the sexual misconduct of the famous and powerful, to name just a few of the seismic, serious and significant stories of the year. Marketing is not immune to many of the geopolitical and macroeconomic trends and has also offered us plenty of its own moments. More local concerns, perhaps, but plenty to chew over. So let's get into it. Michael, your marketing moment of the year. Uh, okay, well, it, my moment is not really a moment as much as a succession of moments that all happen to one company. That um, is allowed. Thank you. All right. Uh, my That One Company is Uber, um, and they have had a uh, concatenation of things go wrong for them this year. Um, started actually probably before this year, but all came to a head really in February um, with a blog post that was published by a female former employee um, and she criticised and accused Uber of having this kind of macho male dominated culture in the workplace, um, sexual harassment being endemic within it um, and that was followed up by a, uh, an investigation by some lawyers that uh, Uber brought in. That then led to 20 people being fired from Uber. Um, and ultimately, uh, Travis Kalanick, the CEO, being asked to resign by shareholders. That wasn't the only um, issue that they had, though. They've also uh, then um, had some problems specifically in London, where, uh, as many people will know, TfL have decided not to renew their uh, private hire taxi license uh, for um, next year, and that's going through the courts at the moment. So they're still operating, but if they're not able to operate in London eventually. That's presumably going to kill off Uber as a brand in the UK. Um, and then uh, even more recently than that, we've just heard about uh, them um, admitting to the fact that they covered up a huge data breach in 2016 and um, they would have, under the law, had to uh, reveal the fact that that had happened and they failed to do so. So all these things um, add up to a really bad year for Uber and Anas Haribalis, if you will. Um, and with Google actually investing around a billion dollars in Lyft recently, mm. um, there are some real questions, I think, about whether Uber's going to be able to carry on. I, I also don't think it's got a very sustainable business model in general, but that's mm. probably... That's a rather portentous outlook uh, described for Uber, the brand. I mean, do you think, though, when people are I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking of my own experience. I need to get somewhere, and I need to get somewhere uh, relatively quickly, um, and it happens. Um, I turn to my phone. I click on the Uber app, and it's convenient. 
and it remains quick and relatively inexpensive. I'm not thinking of any of those things when I'm uh, making that active choice to choose the Uber brand, and I suspect many are the same. I mean, the the Lyft threat to Uber is very real, but from a brand perspective, I don't see any particular evidence that equity has been damaged. Do you think? Well, I think these are two different things. So when I say that I don't think that their business model is very sustainable, that's really got nothing to do with all the bad stuff that happened this year. That's bad, and for me, it makes me think of them as a company I don't want to work with or do uh, do business with. But um, there are many people, obviously, who think differently. What I think, though, is going to do for them in the long term is that they're currently their business model relies less on, I think, what people want to focus on, which is the... The, the mobile phone app aspect, yeah. the technology, the innovation. That's all great, but um, really the, pe- the reason people use them is because they massively undercut their competition, which is the black cabs, um, other private hire cab firms. Um, and they can only do that because they have this huge war chest of venture capital money. Sooner or later, venture capitalists are going to either get fed up with all the bad news that they're hearing and stop pumping money in, or eventually they're just going to realize that Unless Uber manages to knock everybody else out of the marketplace, there isn't really a sustainable, mm. profitable business model. Mm-hmm. So regardless of whether or not customers are still um, choosing to uh, click on or press the app, um, it's the infrastructure behind them uh, that will imperil their very existence by the sounds of things. Well, yeah, and the brand issues are more issues for the shareholders, from my point of view, than for the consumers. Mm. The, the shareholders lose confidence in Uber as a brand and think, actually, maybe Lyft is the better bet, then that's where the the struggle is. Yeah. I clearly have no moral compass. I still drive in (laughs) Volkswagens and uh, get my coffee from Starbucks. (laughs) Uh, Whichever way that you look at it, uh, Uber's had a stinker. Uh, Lucy, your marketing moment of the year. Yeah, so I think um, 2017 was the year that the shine started to fade a bit on influencer marketing for a number of reasons. There was issues um, around ROI, there's regulatory issues, and there's also brands kind of finding the right fit um, that have all kind of those issues have all kind of come to light this year. Um, I think influencers have become increasingly popular with brands, um, looking to connect authentically with younger audiences on social media, um, with money looking to shell out. Uh, huge sums for without actually measuring the impact of that investment. Um, a study by Media Kick shows that brands have already spent um, more than a billion on Instagram um, influencers alone this year. Um, plus, marketers are willing to spend, I think, £75,000 for a single Facebook post, which seems like a crazy amount of money for one single um, kind of piece of marketing that without actually being able to kind of measure the impact mm. of that. that. That study was done by Rakuten Marketing. Um, the same study found that um, 38% of marketers are unable to measure whether influencer activity actually drives sales, which um, creates kind of increasing kind of issues. The fact that marketers are still willing to increase their spend on influencers is a slightly worrying um, situation, I think. Um, the other aspect is that um, there's been a few issues around regulation with brands and influencers not... Um, marking ads or posts um, as sponsored content, which has got a number of people into to trouble. The SA has been working hard to educate people more around what they need to do in those situations. But, um, yeah, as I said, quite a few people have got in trouble this year for yeah. that. Um, the other issue is, again, coming around to finding the right fit. L'Oreal um, uses a number of influencers 
Um, but uh, so it hit the headlines in September for dropping one of its influencers, Monroe Bergdorf, um, after she um, wrote a blog post accusing white people of racial violence following the riots in Charlottesville, um, in which a neo-Nazi driver, um, sorry, neo-Nazi drove a car into crowds of supporters, and many criticised L'Oreal for dropping um, Monroe after that, um, and suggested that actually um, it wasn't kind of looking to promote diversity in as many kind of ways as it's trying to, um, well, aptly looking to talking about doing it. Um, so I think, yeah, there's a, a lot of issues around it. And I think if marketers are going to continue to use influencers, they need to do a much better job at kind of due, dil- due diligence and kind of measurement and kind of approaching all of these issues um, a little bit more thoroughly. Mm. So, I mean, influencer uh, or use of influencers was one of those silver bullets that uh, the marketing community uh, essentially rallied round and agreed on was the way to mm. reach cynical millennials yes. who didn't want to be advertised to um, a way to advertise without actually advertising. Yeah. Um, clearly lots of money went into it um, tons and tons in the money. hope that it would offer that silver bullet solution. You've obviously just catalogued um, a load of concerns, questions, uh, considerations for marketers. Um, is this just... Um, a point, though, that any marketing channel or type would come to where people, just being due diligent, would just start asking various questions. Are we spending too much? Are we spending it in the right way? Or, as the shine come off completely, are we just, is this going to just be confined to uh, the, the dustbin of marketing history? I think, um, I, I don't think that's the case. I, th- I think it will, people, marketers will continue to use influencers, but I think they will become a lot more stringent in their approach to it. Like with any other aspect of marketing, there needs to be a clear reason for doing it. There needs to be a clear reason for that investment. And if you can't prove how well it's working, then serious questions need to be asked. And I think those questions are being raised more so now and will continue to be so going forward. I think they're going to be used partly because in a lot of cases, influencers are free especially mm. in the long tail. So yeah. uh, there's a bit of brand well, risk. It sound as though it's completely free No, anymore. not completely <laughs> free. And I think influencers are also catching on to the fact that they can make big bucks by working with brands on, in these types of relationships. So, yeah, there's definitely issues there, though. Yeah, um, I would agree. I think, uh, like lots of um, digital-first marketing communications, more of which, in a moment, um, 2017 has been... Pause for thought, a moment of reflection uh, where questions are being asked. And that can only be a good thing. Uh, My marketing uh, moment of the year uh, took place in January uh, in the US at the IAB conference. It was a relatively short speech, uh, but one that in many ways uh, rippled throughout the year and indeed defined the year. It was Mark Pritchard, the chief brand officer at P&G's stunning intervention at that conference. Uh, Pritchard called out many uh, of the major failings in digital marketing, transparency in buying, viewability, fraud and brand safety, just a few of them. Now, Pritchard was by no means uh, the first person to talk about this stuff. Uh, Unilever's Keith Weed and indeed the World Federation of Advertisers had flagged many of these issues as concerned and did much great work 
to uh, to force some change. But Mark Pritchard is the most senior marketer at the biggest advertiser in the world. Uh, the language he used was colourful and um, illustrated the problem perfectly. Talk of murky supply chains, etc. And the fact that P&G is a very traditional, old-timey kind of organisation, coupled with the fact that Mark Pritchard is relatively mild-mannered, meant that the novelty of him at that company making these pronouncements almost made the point even, well, certainly underlined it even uh, even greater. Um, but the main thing, I think, that the speech did, and the main reason it resonated throughout the year and will continue to resonate in the coming years, uh, was the fact that he detailed consequences. The deadline for agencies and the digital duopoly that he gave the end of this year to make changes or to lose money, to lose P&G's money, uh, made, made the big difference. And that's why the intervention was so significant. It motivated others to follow suit and put all the issues front and centre in a way that they hadn't been necessarily previously. I mean, digital is a young channel. Uh, the take-up and innovation in digital has rocketed at such a huge pace in the last decade and a half. The promise of mass personalization at scale, of unrivaled effectiveness and unthought of low cost all remain real and possible, but it's quite clear that that promise will only be realized if we sort out the problems and quickly. I think Pritchard's speak to help focus minds of everybody at big companies, at small companies, at medium-sized ones. Uh, and people are now asking questions, marketers are asking questions and taking responsibility in a way for their digital media buying in a way that they hadn't previously or are certainly beginning to. And I think that's clearly a very good thing. And that's why it's my marketing moment of the year. Would you agree, guys? I would say it's just uh, it's surprising that it hadn't happened earlier, but it required Mark Pritchard to be the one who stood up and said it, I think, because of the reasons that you said. Um, and I think that a lot of people haven't said it in the past because they marketers have a vested interest in showing that what they're doing is working. And most people don't want to have to yeah, look again at everything they're doing and yeah. admit to the rest of the business. Actually, we didn't know what was going on. Mm. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. And when the CEO reads the coverage around it and starts asking questions about why um, the way that his company is buying media, rather than the impact of the campaign, is getting more uh, coverage, I suppose that's going to focus minds that little bit more. Um, okay, uh, there are moments of the year, good, bad, and indifferent. Um, let's move on to campaigns. Um, it's been a year of variety of innovation in terms of uh, media use. Um, so there's plenty to discuss. Um, now, let me start with you, Michael. Uh, what's your m marketing campaign of the year? Well, uh, I'm going to start taking things political, I'm afraid, and I'm going to go. Don't be afraid. I'm going to opt <laughs> for the Labour Party's general election and campaign. Um, for the many, not the few, was the strapline. Um, the, the main reason I, I would say at, at the front, um, they didn't win. Obviously, we all, we all know that. And <laughs> the that's, ultimate in, in, in effectiveness. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's something that probably a lot of people tend to forget about that campaign. However, 
um, they did very well in comparison to the expectations. And if you look back to the sort of six weeks before the election cam- uh, campaign, um, well, at the start of the election campaign, six weeks before the election, um, the polls were, uh, I, I don't know if it's more in favour of the Conservatives than at any time in history, but certainly uh, in That's recent memory. certainly up there, yeah. Um, and also uh, there's this whole issue of uh, campaign funding as well. The, the Tories mm. just have a huge uh, advantage in that sense in, in terms of uh, the donations that they receive. So for Labour to overcome those odds um, in the way that they did and do so much better than anybody thought they would um, was an impressive performance. And especially when before the campaign a lot of people were predicting that the Conservatives had this um, sort of magical data-driven targeting machine that was just going to dominate on Facebook. Um, and that didn't really come to pass because Labour had this huge grassroots campaign momentum which seemed to do uh, everything that the Conservatives wanted to do on Facebook but much more effectively. Um, Labour also had the advantage of course of not having Theresa May as their leader, somebody who managed in the space of six weeks to single-handedly undermine all three aspects of her brand positioning, Mm. strong and stable leadership in the national interest Um, and uh, that was obviously in Labour's favour. However, I think that everybody was also quite impressed with uh, just the sort of human tone to the Labour campaign and Jeremy Corbyn specifically. Um, it's Politics now is not a very human and not a very reasonable uh, field of uh, human endeavour. So it's nice that somebody is able to sort of show that political campaigning doesn't need to be um, about cut and thrust and... Uh, heavily media trained PR spin it's something that somebody with a a human message can actually still connect and that's how I think Labour did better than anyone thought Yeah, I mean it it seemed to me like well everything under the Corbyn administration in the build up to the election uh, or certainly before the final few weeks of it that it was a bit calamitous Um, you talk about natural politicians being attractive in a way uh, that they ha- well we just didn't see you know natural organic honest people but you know it almost felt like it was going to the other other extreme that they, it was just they were a victim of circumstance however it seems to me that um, the Labour Party pulled off a classic marketing uh, trick and a, a classic marketing campaign they they researched their audience to find out what made particularly young people tick they had a strong and compelling proposition in the many not the few they had a, a great product offer um, questions over how it could be funded but certainly radical policies that appealed to people and stood a million miles away from the rather anemic conservative party offer which was pretty much more of the same but a little bit less here and there um, they segmented and, and then delivered a campaign whether or not it be with grime artists or on the front cover of... Did he appear on the front cover of Kerrang! and The Enemy? You know, all of these things seem to me like a classic marketing campaign that came from calculated and and experience and, um, and uh, experienced marketers. Well, yeah, the, the difference, I think, was I, the Conservatives would have had that as well. I don't, I don't mm. think that political parties can get away without having that now. It's a, it's a professional... It's full of professional um, marketing people um, mm. doing those jobs so they all do it it's just the conservatives um, a didn't 
deliver on their promise um, and B, I think, had the same problem that Labour had in the 2015 election, which was they thought that they could win by just stumbling over the finishing line. Mm. And it turned out that actually they stumbled quite a long Mm. way short of the finishing Mm. line. Mm. Lucy. Thanks, Michael, by the way. Uh, Lucy, uh, your campaign of the year. So a slightly different um, type of campaign. We like that. Um, but it, um, the campaign that I'm going to choose is um, IKEA's response to um, comparisons being made on social media between designer Balenciaga's big blue shopper bag and its, I don't know if you know it, the Fractor shopping bag that you pick up anytime you go to Ikea. Unfortunately, I am very aware of the <laughs> Very bag. familiar. Um, but yeah, but on, on social media, people picked up on the uncanny resemblance between the two in the colour, the shape, the size, the style, everything. And um, kind of much joking and discussion, after much joking and discussion, the retailer initially responded um, saying that it was deeply flattered by the, the fact that um, the bag resembles its Fractor shopping bag so much. Um, but following kind of more chatter on um, social, and then took that one step further and brought out a tongue-in-cheek guide highlighting the qualities of the IKEA bag and explaining how people can make sure they don't um, mistake it for sorry mistake the um, the designer bag for the for the original. Um, so they came up with things such as like shake it if it rustles it's the real deal, and um, if you can fit it into the size of a, a small purse then uh, congratulations you've got the right bag. Um, it can it kind of created a, a huge kind of amount of um, interest on social. It's picked up across the world um, by uh, mainstream media, including Vogue and Daily Mail and The Guardian, generating more than 165 million um, unique media impressions and over $6 million um, worth of earned media um, for a zero media budget, which is not bad. Um, in that time as well, it also um, managed to... Sorry... Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so that's some, enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, it just—it sounds like to me, and this is not damning it with faint praise, but a really well-executed uh, PR campaign. It was. There was an element of that to it, yeah. but I think it was um, the kind of the the quick reaction to it, and it's kind of a lesson to to any marketers looking to kind of pick up on what's happening around them and use that um, to fuel their their own kind of marketing. Yeah. Um, I think. Ikea did that really well, kind of taking that and um, kind of really nailing that kind of reactive yeah. marketing element and making, turning it to their advantage, yeah. basically. I suppose it gives somebody or people something else to think about when they think of Ikea. Exactly. Which is, well, for me anyway, absolute torture. <laughs> torture and meatballs. Torture yeah. and meatballs. <laughs> or torture in meatballs. <laughs> anyway, moving on and changing gear again. Uh, my campaign of the year... Um, perhaps not an obvious one. Uh, it's Sun Life's uh, Welcome to the Over 50s campaign. Uh, the reason I've chose this, well, in terms of context or my thoughts on it, um, is advertising aimed at over 50s has uh, tended to depict rather amorphous groups of people uh, that fail to represent the many faces of those past the half century mark. Um, financial services brands, I would say, have been particularly guilty as anyone uh, in reducing. Uh, big group of people, a big chunk of people down to sledgehammer stereotypes. Uh, Sun Life's campaign, however, uh, is a refreshing change from that norm. Uh, The campaign challenged stereotypes by depicting the panoply of behaviour, attitudes and activities enjoyed by those past 50. Um, It's been a success, 
uh, by the measures that we saw uh, in its Masters of Marketing entry. It was the winning financial services brand for that campaign. Um, 8% uplift in brand consideration, just one of the measures. Um, and it also just shows you that the rewards for brands that can look past stereotypes is undeniable. Uh, another report uh, that we reported on on Marketing Week this year uh, from Attachy Capital UK and the Centre for Economic and Business Research found that over 50s represent spend um, of 365 billion a year and uh, they outspend Oh, outspent, sorry, uh, younger consumers in 2016 for the first time. So with that at stake, that potential uplift and those benefits, getting it right and not treating an entire group of people as the same clearly has a lot of brand benefit but good old-fashioned profit to be had. Um, Sun Life has shown the way and I hope that others follow suit uh, so that's my campaign of the year. Uh, we're going to sort of bring this conversation, this podcast to a conclusion by looking forward, getting out our crystal balls and uh, offering a little insight, a little prediction into what marketers we feel uh, are going to be preoccupied with in 2018. I'm going to start with you again, Michael. What's your trend for 2018? Uh, four letters, GDPR. <laughs> oh, um, that thing. If you don't know what they stand for, they are uh, You're general. In <laughs> yeah, well, you are. Uh, you should probably just start ring fencing, ring fencing the amount of money that you're going to send to the ICO in fines now. If you don't know, um, but they stand for General Data Protection Regulation, um, which, uh, as you might well imagine, is a new law governing the use of data, which is coming into force in May 2018. Um, the things you should already be doing, um, you, you should already be aware, and if you are aware, then hopefully you've already started making preparations. As a marketer, you're not the only person who's going to need to be doing it, so it's going to be done um, in collaboration with your legal department, certainly, uh, and others inside your organisation. If uh, that hasn't started that yet, then you should certainly have started asking questions about why not um, mm. and at this stage with uh, sort of five or, or six months to go depending on when this goes out um, you're probably going to have to bring in some outside uh, advice as well I would think. Mm. Um, the, the thing that most people seem to uh, concentrate on is consent around marketing um, with a good reason it's going to be uh, changing how consent is asked for and, and taken uh, quite considerably. You can't now rely uh, on um, a pre-ticked box and a consumer leaving that ticked, uh, and you also can't ask them to opt out of receiving marketing from you. But consent isn't the only thing you should be focusing on. I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail about what all the others are, um, because there's uh, A, I'm not a lawyer, and B, there's an awful lot of uh, words uh, online that can probably do mm. it a lot better than me. So I would definitely suggest that anybody uh, who isn't in a position where they know enough about this to say that in 2018, May 2018, they're going to be the right side of the law, then certainly go and start checking out the uh, Information Commissioner's Office website um, and get your legal department to read through every letter of GDPR um, because 
the fines, obviously, everybody knows, probably uh, are quite substantial, up to, I think, 17 million pounds or 20 million euros or 4% of your global turnover if you get it wrong. I think that the ICO is going to be looking for a a big test case probably Mm. early um, uh, after May uh, to sort of put a big marker down and and, uh, act as a deterrent. So to make sure you're not that test case, um, you need to start doing the things that I've just described. Mm. I remember when... um GDPR was first announced, or the uh, the draft directive was, um, and it was described as a well in various different, very dramatic terms as you know a killer of direct marketing, of a seismic change of the the sort of which that marketing hadn't seen since the previous seismic change that was so big, uh, marketers had not seen it before. Um, what would your take be? I mean, now we're literally months away. Is it going to be the massive, fundamental, shape-shifting change to the way that marketers do their business? Well, I spoke last week to the new chairman of the DM Trust, um, mm. direct marketing or, or data-driven marketing, I think they now prefer to be called, um, uh, Matthew Housen. He pointed out that there was exactly the same uh, soul-searching and uh, concern when the Data Protection Act originally came in. People mm. thought this was going to be apocalyptic as well. And now you look at it and you realize that these things are necessary mm. uh, for protecting consumers and for maintaining that uh, level of trust between um, brands and consumers. And this is the thing that I think everybody needs to accept uh, because it's happening anyway, so you, you need to look at it as an opportunity rather mm, than yeah. um, rather than a problem. You need to be looking at uh, how you can use this to improve your relationship with your customers and make people realise that the power is now with them. And if it's not with them, you should be pushing it more towards them. Mm-hmm. Lucy, you were agreeing uh, yeah. with that. I mean, we've been speaking, um, and you can read them all. Uh, all the ones that we've done today on marketingweek.com to brands in different sectors asking uh, the marketers at those brands how they're approaching it, how mm. they're tackling it. Um, to Michael's point about opportunity, what have they been saying to you? I think I think that, that exactly that. The fact that it is obviously something that is required and marketers must be doing this, but rather than seeing it as a challenge, rather than seeing it as... And something that it's going to be debilitating to business actually look at it as an opportunity and look at how you can make your business better as a result of that what um, what opportunities it provides as a result another thing that um, people have been saying is don't see the 25th of May next year as the finish line that's it's a marker in the sand and you need to be shown to be making a difference and doing all the things that are required but it's an ongoing process it's not we've hit the 25th of May job done it's continually um, evaluating all the the systems and processes and everything that's in place in order to make sure that you're continually compliant going forward as well let's hope the ICO uh, see it that way I can see um, defense cases being <laughs> given saying well Lucy Tesla from Marketing <laughs> Week said that the 25th of May shouldn't be the end game anyway moving on uh, continuing with you though uh, Lucy um, indulges with your uh, crystal ball gazing and, uh, and 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 what marketers should be looking out for next year. Well, I think um, well-being, workplace well-being, has um, been a big talking point um, this year, and I think um, it's going to only accelerate next year. I think it's transitioned from being 
physical well-being to, to mental well-being this year. Um, government figures show that, that 526,000 people suffered from work-related stress or depression or anxiety in 2016-2017. And um, the Mental Health First Aid calculates that £35 billion Pounds is lost every year due to poor health with people taking time off due to sickness uh, in reduced um, productivity and three billion of that is in replacing staff who leave their jobs because of mental health related reasons. So prevention can not only help employees' health but it could also make a serious dent in that figure. Um, historically these kind of initiatives have been led by big corporates but um, talking to, to Boopers, Patrick Watt who's their corporate director of Global Health and Wellness. He was saying that there's now a, a massive opportunity for small businesses to really lead the way um, on these initiatives. Um, and he suggests that the impact could be even greater for employees of small businesses rather than um, the, the ones in, in larger businesses. Um, I think businesses are waking up to the fact that employee wellbeing has a, a huge impact when it comes to attracting and retaining um, the best talent as well. Um, I think going forward it's going to be crucial that brands start to integrate um, mental health and emotional well-being into performance management, which is something we wrote quite a bit about um, over the, the course of this year, um, if they're really wanting to kind of build an engaged and resilient um, workforce. Um, brands like DirectLine are doing it already. Um, they um, measure marketers, so 50% of marketers' performances based on their achievements, but the other 50% is based on how they get to that point. Mm. So. They may have hit their target, but if they do so in a way that's detrimental to their health or um, has an impact on them emotionally, then it's not regarded as a success necessarily. So I think um, going forward, there's going to be kind of a lot more focus on on that area. Mm. And from a marketing perspective, I suppose that treating your staff well, who in essence and should be your biggest brand advocates, um, is a differentiator. It's 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 something that will ultimately stand you apart from competitors. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, talking to a lot of marketers um, on this subject is almost a job for marketing internally to kind of make sure that these initiatives are in place and that um, that the rest of the business understands the value of having um, kind of a healthy um, workforce, both kind of mentally and um, physically. Mm. Thank you, uh, Lucy. Mine's less of a trend, more of a rallying call. However you look at it, 2018 is shaping up to be a difficult year from a macroeconomic perspective. Brexit uncertainty, falling productivity and brittle consumer confidence are likely to combine in a toxic brew that's going to make the year a challenging one for marketers and brands. Now, marketing, as we all know, is seen as a discretionary cost by many in business. We haven't done any favours uh, for ourselves in creating the perception though, especially in the pursuit that many seem hell-bent on in talking down advertising and marketing. To me, there's a kind of defeatism that marketing is unattractive and advertising in particular, that world-weary millennials in particular have a zero tolerance for advertising that they have no time or truck for a brand that doesn't promise to save the planet or offer something incredibly worthy. It doesn't appear to me that marketers believe that just selling stuff, creating value is enough for them. There's an obsession with attribution that means efficiency is beginning to trump effectiveness. Now there's still a lot that 
we can do in marketing to confine the colouring in department, that moniker, to history. For example, prioritising insight over data and demonstration of meaningful effectiveness and a grown-up business approach to growth generation, just a few of those things. However, as a recent Thinkbox study shows, there is one arguable, unarguable fact even, that everyone, brand and agency side should be shouting loudly at every opportunity, that advertising delivers what every company strives for, profit. There's a mountain of evidence out there that demonstrates that there is an immense business value in understanding and serving consumers. And my advice to everybody listening is don't forget that when you're talking down marketing. Let me send you into the new year with that positive message and perhaps even a spring in your step. Love yourself, love what you do and understand even the immense value of what you offer. Now that's it on that positive note. That's our podcast. So thanks to Michael and Lucy for their contributions today. Thanks, guys. And thanks for everybody that listens. You can find out more on marketingweek.com and you can follow us on social channels. So Merry Christmas and have a Happy New Year. Goodbye.